Hello and welcome to another Thursday on Planet Earth, which means it's time for another episode of Cloud9Fin, the podcast where we explore the weird and wonderful world of corporate debt and anything tangentially related to it, which is actually quite a lot. I'm your host, Will Cager Smith, and this week I'm only here to introduce our private credit editor, David Brook, who recorded a fascinating chat earlier this week with one of the biggest names in direct lending, Craig Packer of Blue Owl. So without further ado, welcome to Ninefin's latest discussion on the current state of the private credit market. We follow up on a recent discussion with Tim Line of Ontario's with another heavy hitter in the private credit market, Craig Packer, a co-founder of Owl Rock, which operates today as Blue Owl. Happy to have you, Craig. Thanks, David. I don't know about a heavy hitter, but I'm happy to be here. Um, <laughs> so where are we today in the rapidly growing world of private credit? Market continues to grow, but is increasingly under the spotlight. 500 million unit tranches was a milestone for the market not so long ago. Now we're talking million, multi-billion dollar deals. Let's talk about a market a trillion and a half in size today and may potentially double by 2026, according to some forecasts. So where do we begin? What's the outlook for the private credit market today? Sure. So I think it's worth just, just thinking about where we're starting. We're midway through the year. Um, at beginning of the year, I think there was you know questions about private credit and the higher rate environment. Halfway through the year, private credit's done terrific. Credit performance continues to be really strong. Uh, the higher rates um, that are out there are flowing through our funds. Um, investors in our funds are having a terrific experience. They're getting higher dividends, great credit performance. Um, the asset class continues to grow. It continues to be more and more popular with the private equity firms. It's a great year so far. Um, if you look out, obviously rates are higher, and that you know that is going to impact companies' ability to service their debt. Um, I think there's growing concern about um, economic, you know, weakness. Um, I would have thought by now perhaps we'd even be in a recession. All the economy continues to be um, quite strong. Um, I would expect at some point these higher rates will probably impact the economy and we will have some type of economic weakness. I would have said third quarter, um, but sitting here right now, I might push that to the fourth quarter or first quarter of next year. Um, but to your question, um, I, I would expect to see some impact from the higher rates and a potentially weaker economy impact our portfolios, but I think it will be manageable. Um, and I think that private credit um, and I'm not just talking about our firm. I think the bigger firms in general are focused on high-quality companies in the more recession-resistant part of the economy that won't be as severely impacted by a downturn. Um, there'll be some pickup in credit stress, but I think it'll be a relatively limited part of the portfolio. And at the same time, you know, we're just earning so much from these higher rates, so I think the higher earnings will more than offset a modest pickup in, in losses. So I expect continued good performance from private credit. You know, I think, frankly, it will surprise folks that have been, you know, wondering if the, if the asset class is going to um, not perform as well. I think we will. And I think we'll come out of this, not that I'm rooting for a big test, but I think if there is any kind of test, I think private credit will, will, will pass that test and do quite well. Interesting. I figured as a credit guy, you're probably a little bit more generally pessimistic as a personality, but that sounds quite a, <laughs> a positive outlook there. I wanted to talk a little bit um, structurally on the kind of investor side. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, you talked about kind of um, higher interest rates, floating rate loans, therefore, you know, double digit yields on senior secured loans. But so there's been a lot of like focus on retail money in this market. And your firm manages a bunch of um, BDCs, public and private. 
So I'm just kind of interested in terms of that shift towards more retail money. But there's the difficulty there of flows that can swing quite dramatically compared with, say, of institutional money. It's less sticky. So perhaps maybe I'd just be interested to hear, like, what issues and how you deal with that, perhaps. And if a recessionary environment does emerge, are you concerned about that retail money? We, um, we have two funds that are non-traded BDCs that are really targeting the high net worth um, channels. So I think when you say retail, I think that's probably you know mostly what you're referring to. Um, the way we structure these funds is very different than what you might think of as classic retail. Mm-hmm. I think when folks talk about retail, what they're really thinking about is that classic mutual fund mm-hmm. where you have money that comes into a market and has daily liquidity and can get redeemed daily, weekly, and can result in volatile swings as sentiment you know, shifts around. The way we structure our non-traded funds is very different, and appropriately so, given that we're investing in completely non-liquid assets, you know, it would make no sense to structure the funds to offer that kind of daily liquidity that could result in those kind of big swings. Um, so frankly, the retail money that we're, that we're seeing in our market is quite sticky. The funds do not allow for significant redemptions. Now, there, are, there were some redemptions. Um, our funds, we had very modest redemptions, and I don't want to spend too much time dwelling on other funds, but generally the way these funds are structured is they really limit uh, redemptions to something like 5% of equity per quarter. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty restrictive. Um, now that got some headlines and some funds that weren't able to meet those redemptions. But actually, that's the way the funds were designed because the assets are illiquid. It makes sense to have the liabilities and the equity also not allow for you know immediate redemption. So I think that that got some headlines. The reality is I think the funds performed as advertised. Almost all the capital stayed in those funds. Um, and the managers were able to kind of work through those problems. We didn't see any real pickup in redemptions. Um, I would argue um, that the stereotype of the retail investor or the high net worth investor is actually not the behavior we're seeing. Um, we sell through uh, a lot of financial advisor networks. They're very comfortable with the products, the time horizon. They really like the returns that we offer. Whereas funds are offering double-digit um, yields. Um, so the clients understand what they're investing in. They like getting those returns. The performance has been good. And we found it to be um, quite sticky. So what do I think? What's interesting is institutional investors that have long time horizons, many pensions, endowments might have 20% of their um, investments and alternatives. In the retail space, it's low single digits. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for investors that have a long time horizon, that's an important proviso. This isn't for day trading. This isn't for someone trying to earn money for a month or a quarter. If that's what you want, you should be in a mutual fund. But if you have a time horizon where you're comfortable locking your money up for seven, eight, ten years, um, these funds can offer a really attractive rate of return, and you've got to be comfortable with that illiquidity. I will tell you, for our firm, and I'm, I, I want to highlight this, I want investors to understand that that is the constraint. Um, it makes sense if you can have that long time horizon. I think these can be, you know, a nice part of your portfolio. I mean, you should be in other more liquid parts of, of assets if you want that that type of daily liquidity. Yeah, I guess the headlines for years has been we've locked out your retail investor from the growth of private markets private markets have grown at an extraordinary pace private equity private credit you know now private credit seems to be kind of there's been a lot of launches of private bdc's um so i'm curious in terms of just just 
moving on from the kind of discussion on the retail investor in terms of like, I guess we always talk about the understanding of the retail investor, you know, like if there's a lot of private BDCs, private credits, a relatively untested market. Do you think that might be a little bit of concern because we are, because I think you mentioned in your first uh, discussion point about like a test for a lot of managers Therefore, we're going to find out who's the good performers, who's been doing the good loans, who's been doing the bad loans. I think for your average investor, that's kind of difficult to work out. Well, look, investors should understand what they're investing in. I, you know, I think that's you know part of being a responsible investor. Um, you know, the asset class um, I think is is of high quality, and I I think investors that understand the risk, the liquidity risk, but the credit risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, should um, it should be a part of their portfolios. It's no different than the high yield bond market. It's yeah. no different than the leverage loan market. It's not investment grade debt. You have to understand that. Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to invest in non-investment grade debt, um, you can get a significant premium. Um, right now, rates are high, so maybe that doesn't seem as interesting. It wasn't that long ago where rates were basically at zero percent, and uh, a lot of uh, sophisticated retail investors. We're really looking for ways to generate some return, hmm. and that's what we offer in a consistent way. And you know, we as a manager, you know, we're investing in high-quality companies. Our average EBITDA per cash flow is $175 million. These are really big, important companies. On average, we lend at about 45% loan-to-value to private equity-backed companies in sectors like software, healthcare, insurance brokerage. Um, I, I don't have any concern about our general credit performance. I think that those that don't really study the asset class, sometimes they ask the question. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, our funds have performed really well. I feel confident they're going to continue to perform well. And, again, this should be a part of your portfolio. It shouldn't be your whole portfolio. We have found, um, whether it be um, the financial advisors that we work with, um, the uh, RIAs that we work with, they want to have these products. They want to work with large, responsible managers um, that um, do a good job not only managing the money, but being available to talk to the clients. They want to have a few alongside private equity, real estate, other product offerings. We've been very fortunate to find ourselves to be one of those you know, few firms that uh, earn the trust of those partners. Um, I think we're really in the early days. I think it's going to continue to grow. We're continue to see lots of appetite um, for new firms, for new clients. Um, the asset class is, is growing. I think it will continue to grow. Interesting. And so just like talking about that deal side, because um, um, as an institution, you look at kind of those bigger deals. You said the average EBITDA is $175 million, puts you at one of the sort of larger players, kind of tap, touching on that mm-hmm. bank syndicated loan market. The narrative for many years has been, you know, private credit has been taking deal share from the banks. But we've heard kind of relatively recently a few bank, few deals going towards the banks instead of private credit or being financed out of private credit into the banks. So I'm just kind of curious, is the pendulum swinging in the favor of the banks right now? Or is that kind of is a trickle, not a trend? Yeah. Well, if you look over the long sweep of time, you know, we started our business seven years ago. Um, and I think you you know this, the trend has been very consistently towards direct lending over that seven years in a pretty consistent way. Um, at the last numbers I saw, direct lending was about 20% of the overall leverage finance space. You know, I would bet you over the next five years that number grows to 30%. That'd be 50% growth from where we are today. So I think that long-term secular trend continues. Um, as we and other large managers raise more capital, we can offer direct lending for bigger and bigger deals. 
And so the financial sponsor now, you talked about 500 million to a billion, but now we're regularly looking at 2 billion, 3 billion, 5 billion. And so that's gonna continue to grow that share for direct lending in the overall leveraged finance space. The syndicated markets are, are still very active and they're still gonna be a, very much a part of the landscape. It's not an either or. Um, certain types of, of companies will choose syndicated uh, solutions, certain sponsors will. Um, but the trend is more and more um, to go um, direct. Now, there's also a cyclical piece to this, which is in periods of time where the banks become you know, pulled back from underwriting, um, direct lending, you know, we're, we're able to be there in all markets. We were underwriting deals in the middle of COVID when the banks were not really able to underwrite. Um, and so I think that's a positive force for credit creation. Um, I think it's also, um, um, you know, it's that trend will go up and down. In the last six, nine months, the banks really had pulled back. So direct money was kind of the only game in town. So our market share was kind of 100%. Um, now you're, you know, I, I like your phrase, trickle. <laughs> you know, the banks are willing to underwrite. I expect the banks to be more fully willing to underwrite. What the banks are doing is very different than what we're doing. The banks are not making loans. The banks are making short-term commitments that they want to take out in the public markets, primarily by selling those loans to CLOs. So when there's time that CLO creation is very large, then the banks will be comfortable underwriting and taking that risk to distribute. Um, that's the normal state of affairs, and that should be you know, what I would expect to happen over the next 12 months. But that doesn't that doesn't in any way take away from this this secular shift um, that I think will continue to grow. So. Um, both markets, you know, should coexist. There are going to be periods of time where the direct, the direct market is probably the dominant market share. Um, there's going to be periods of time where, where they stand side by side, um, and that's 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 a pretty healthy thing, and it's good for the companies and it's good for the sponsors, um, and um, you know that's that's the normal state of affairs. Interesting. You sort of talk about it being complementary there. I guess like we as journalists like binaries. We like yeah. banks versus private credit. Yeah. You like conflict. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, isn't what the Hollywood yeah. film industry is all about? Storytelling yeah. is conflict. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, right now in the sustainability of, say, Unitrans debt right now, um, rising rates, uh, a number of loans, a number of perhaps a loan book made in the private any many, many previous years were written when, lo when interest rates were essentially at zero. Um, but now, you know, with rising interest rates, an all-in unit tranche can be about double-digit yield. Is that sustainable for a lot of companies and certainly for new deals? If a sponsor wants to come to the market, can they afford to pay pay those costs? Well, um, look, the higher costs are a function of the higher rate environment. We make floating rate loans. That's great for our investors. When rates go up, they benefit. Um, and so for existing portfolio companies or financial sponsors, um, they're paying more now. I would say that has been, um, it's been manageable so far. Um, the higher rates are certainly eating into uh, cash flow. Cash flow get reduced. Uh, but the sponsors are managing through that. And I think they're, they're doing a nice job of managing through that. Some of them had hedged. Um, but even beyond that, as hedges wear off, they're trying to cut costs, manage liquidity. And I think by and large, you know, in this, at this sort of rate point, most of the companies will be just fine. It's going to be tight. Um, but it certainly impacts um, how much sponsors can afford to pay for new companies. Um, certainly, it's, that's more expensive, and they've got to factor that in. Um, you know, I think that, that that's the case in the syndicated market or a direct market. Cost of capital has gone up. You would expect that to impact valuation. 
Um, I think that's one of the reasons why deal flow is generally lighter right now. That plus the outlook's a little bit uncertain. Um, but I would say by and large, the deals that we are seeing, the sponsors are still paying really big prices despite um, the higher debt load. Um, I think that's in part because while rates are very high today, it's floating rate debt. And um, I think there's an expectation, it might take a year, it might take two years, rates will come back down. These are not one and two year decisions when you buy a company. And so I think the sponsors, um, you know, when they're looking at a very attractive business that they're going to pay 15 to 20 times cash flow, you know, the extra one to 2% on the debt, which is only, you know, less than half the capital structure on the margin of certainly, you know, impact valuation, but, but you know, not, 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 um, not so much that it makes things doable or not doable. Um, it's generating better returns for our investors. That's coming a little bit out of the hide of the private equity investors. Um, you know, over time, as you, the market gets more clarity on the economy, where rates are going, it'll be very interesting to see what the Fed does, you know, coming up. You know, that'll impact things just as much as what the spot rate is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, fascinating. I mean, any opportunities right now? So that seems like M&A deals in a slump. I saw 2022 figures are very much was was down compared with the exciting year of 2021 where everyone broke records. Um, so it seems like a lot of opportunities are add-on finances right now. Is is that a healthy sign of the market that perhaps it is leaning more, higher proportion of deal flow is add-ons? Or is it just a function of a cyclicality of a market there that M&A will slump for a little bit, will come down, add-ons will go up as proportion, and then maybe perhaps the pendulum swings back towards more M&A compared to add-ons? The easiest underwrites we do are add-ons, right? <laughs> Existing portfolio company, we know it. You know, again, one of the big advantages of direct lending, we're in constant contact with the companies, with the sponsors. Um, we get much better information than the public loan investor gets. Um, and so when a sponsor is coming to us for a company that's been in our portfolio two, three years, needs some additional capital, already, we are already the lender. Um, you know, obviously we update our work, but but you know we're up. Our teams are updated already, and so if it's a, a well-performing company and they're doing something that's you know makes sense to us, that's the easiest check we'll write. So we love doing add-ons. Um, if all if I could invest all our money with add-ons, you know it'd be a lot easier. The new deal is the tougher deal because you know it's new to us, it's new to the private equity firms, and despite all the due diligence in the world, you know a new a new deal you know has has greater risk. Um, I think you're right that in this environment, new deals are lighter. There are there are new deals. You know, it's we are we actually are, have a quite active pipeline. Our investment committee, um, and so if I had to guess, I would say our capital, you know, is probably still skewed to new deals. It's probably 60% new deals. So it's, it's certainly doing plenty of new deals. But the add-ons are probably you know are a meaningful percentage. I think that. Um, you know, as the market picks up, whether that takes six months or a year, there'll be plenty of new deals to do. And so that 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 pendulum, if you will, will swing back. I just want to, you know, reiterate, it's really exciting for us as a direct lender to keep growing that portfolio of incumbent relationships. Um, the CFOs, we just had a big CFO conference in New York. We had 60 of our CFOs come spend the day with us. Um, they become more and more comfortable. One of the things that direct lending really offers is that the way you think about how banks used to work with companies where where, uh, where a CFL knows their lender, that's how we operate. The syndicated markets that actually don't operate like that at all. We, people always refer to it as being provided by the banks. 
the banks at closing, you know, they allocate that deal to CLOs and hedge funds and the companies left to fend for themselves to talk to those investors. They don't know who those investors are. That's not the case in our market. So as these companies work with direct lenders, the sponsors work with direct lenders, that's something they value. And that's one of the reasons why we're able to charge a premium. Um, so looking forward, I expect more new deals to come. Um, we're not getting any repayments right now. And so we're not, I know that, that you like to write about new deals. We're not in the new deal business. We're in the investment business, right? One of the things I love about not having to be in my old investment banking <laughs> seat, like I don't care about market share, right? And I haven't thought about market share in seven years. So when I have a big portfolio of loans and they're working well, the companies are performing, we're generating income, we pass that on to our investors, we're not getting a lot of repayments, that's a good situation. Mm -hmm. I don't have any anxiety about how I do a new deal. Now we have ramping funds and those funds, yeah, we do think about where we're gonna get the new opportunities. Uh, but from our standpoint, that's not a problematic situation. That's actually a really good situation. I always imagine that doing new deals is more fun than add-ons. We're not in the fun business. <laughs> We're in the investment business. We want to generate great returns for our clients. Um, and if we can do that in add-ons that are lower risk, you know, we'll do that as much as possible. But you are having more fun in private credit than you are in a bank. Well, I think that most people that leave banking and get a chance to go to uh, uh, the other side generally have more fun. I had a great time as a, as a banker. I had a long career as an investment banker, as you know. I had wonderful years at Goldman Sachs and um, Credit Suisse and have great friends that are still in those businesses. And, and I think they're having fun, too. Uh, but, yes, this new chapter has been, been, been a lot of fun, and we've had a lot of success and pretty excited about the future. Oh, excellent. I guess like my, my final question is on kind of documentation trends because very much for many years it was sponsors having the upper hand and last year it very much switched around and their lenders had an upper hand in terms of negotiating their documentation. I'm just wondering where we are now in terms of that the pressure points in negotiation with sponsors right now in terms of what you're able to win in documentation or what maybe you have to give up in terms of win the deal. Sure. So first, just to be really clear, direct lending documents are dramatically better than the documentation in the public markets. Mm. It's stark. Mm. Um, and it's probably intuitive why that's the case. In the broadly distributed market, the banks are working for the companies and the sponsors to get the most aggressive documents they can. And the buyer base, the CLOs, don't have a really great ability to push back on that. They take small pieces of every deal. They don't have concentrated negotiating position. Um, when markets, when they have cash, they got to deploy the cash. They got to buy whatever deal that is. That's a tough environment. Ours is very different. You know, we care deeply about the documents. Um, our teams are expert in them. We're buy and hold investor. We're making a loan for seven years. We simply can't afford to live with weak documentation. We'll just walk from a deal. We just can't have it. it doesn't happen. Um, certainly, it's the case that, you know, there's just like pricing, there's movement up and down same in documentation, but we have bedrock principles that we just don't bend over. Um, in particular, for example, one of the things that you hear about in the public markets is asset leakage. Mm. You know, we simply do not allow for assets to get, you know, stripped out or big dividends to get paid um, or collateral to be moved around. We just can't afford to live with that with that type of risk, and we don't. Um, where are the you know, where's the where where's like the uh, on the margin? Where are the conversations nowadays? Um, EBITDA adjustments are always a, t a topic uh, that, that we spend a lot of time on. Sponsors buying a company, 
they they believe in the um, uh, profitability of the business being improved based on things that have happened, acquisitions or cost cuts and what have you. They're willing to pay for those. You know, they'd like their lender to give credit. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time on that type of a topic. Uh, topic. We underwrite our own. We have our own EBITDA. You know, view. Our teams do a lot of work on it. It's a big topic at IC. That's the kind of conversation that we'll have with a sponsor of what we're willing to underwrite or not. It's not a very, it's not a tense conversation, right? You know, they're smart, we're smart, we're all reasonable, you know, but there's credits that, you know, we've come to the same view on and there's credits, you know, that we don't and that's totally fine. Um, You know, we are, the other area, you know, leakage, again, we don't generally live with it. You know, debt incurrence is always a topic of discussion, the ability to provide incrementals. The thing I want to you know remind you of, which I which I know you know, but I think it's important. Sponsors generally want to have two, three, four lenders in a deal, so it's not like we have to have a take it or leave it conversation. It's just not like that. We work with the sponsors, same sponsors, year in and year out, deal in and deal out, and they generally, you know, there's things that are important to them. There's things that are important to us. We both try to hit those. The rest of it, generally, it's not that hard. Um, and I would say the sponsors um, that are thoughtful about their direct lending relationships, they're trying to find something that is comfortable for two, three, four lenders, and everybody might have a different priority or two. And they would prefer to have us all in together because they want to grow their companies and don't want to just have one lender. Um, so it's not binary. It's not adversarial. Um, if there's something really important, um, we try to accommodate that. If we get asked early on for something that's really important that we don't think we're going to be able to accommodate, we'll just say that up front, um, and they can find someone you know that's better suited for that particular loan. Um, and so I, I think it's a pretty productive relationship. Again, we're the lender, which means this is not just about what terms that you can get from us on the way in. We're going to be your lender for the next seven years. Things, there are going to be opportunities where you're going to want us to help fund those opportunities. There are going to be problems where you're going to come to us and ask us to help work on those problems. That's the kind of relationship. We're the revolving credit provider for the company. We're the liquidity provider. Times like COVID come where companies ask us for um, for help. You know, Times like regional banking crisis come where companies have to. So they are going to come to us. And I think sponsors are sophisticated on this point. They understand there's some give and take. Um, and by and large, they want to find a nice middle ground with a lender that they get a good deal. We have our protections. We can go have a successful investment uh, together. Fascinating. Well, that kind of covers all my questions for now. I think we can go ahead and we'll keep looking for the conflict. You keep looking for the investments. There we go. Um, thank you, Craig, for taking time to chat with me today. Great. Thanks for having me. All right, well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. And please don't be afraid to get in touch with any feedback, good or bad. You can reach us by emailing team at ninefin.com. For next week, I'll leave you in the very capable hands of my colleagues in London, and we'll be back the week after that in the US. So until then, as always, take care.